Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Welcome to Word in Your Ear. Our guest this evening, I was just reminiscing with him about one of the last occasions we saw each other was, and when people ask, you know, where were you at the height of video madness in the 1980s? You know, everybody's got their own particular memory. My particular memory was, I think the year 1988 was being up a bayou in, in the backwoods of Louisiana. Yes. I think the bayou was actually infested by alligators. And snakes. And snakes. Why were we there? Because Level 42 was shooting a video. Yeah. And this was in the days when everybody had extraordinary budgets to spend on videos. And I have a memory that all the members of, of Level 42 were painted blue for the occasion. Yes. In order that they should read as black and white on the finished, on the finished video. No, that's absolutely right, David. And our guest this evening has always has a very special place in my heart because not only is he a wonderful musician, but he's also a person who in, in unfailingly has seen the absurd side of being a musician. <laughs> Uh, whether that involves, you know, playing in front of huge crowds at, you know, Wembley Arena and so forth, or whether that involves being painted, painted blue, blue. Yeah. halfway up a bayou in Louisiana, would you please welcome Mark King? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Do you remember that occasion, Mark? I, I most certainly do, David. Yeah, it was um, one of the most fun weeks. I've had. We, we, we were flown out by the record company to shoot two videos, uh, Heaven in My Hands and uh, I can't remember what the other one was. And it doesn't matter really. But the one you were referring to did have us up a bayou, um, painted blue, all looking like Smurfs. So that the video technique of the time was we would appear as black and white. I suppose it's an early form of blue screen, wasn't it, really? And then they could just lock into the fact we were all painted blue. So we'd be black and white, but there was this incredible 
um, New Orleans backdrop, uh, you know, behind us too. But I can remember that sort of between the takes and the bits and pieces. And this actually was the very first time that Gary Husband had played uh, with the band because uh, Phil and Boone Gould had exited the band only a couple of months earlier. And I think that's why I had such a good time doing this because, to me, the, the, the relief of actually getting things back and running again was palpable because, you know, half the creative force had left the band. Um, you know, we, we were being... We, we were at our most successful at that point in 1987, 88. Um, and, and it was this sort of befuddling, you know, moment of, oh, no, what are we going to do? And then... Thank goodness Gary Husband sort of came along and saved us and the great Alan Murphy, uh, the late great Alan right, Murphy, yeah. unfortunately, came along. And we, we had another, that's it, we had a new sort of lease of life and it was very exciting. And, and of course, the relief always comes out with sort of uh, just huge laughter. And we had a fantastic time and it was lovely that you were there to share that, actually. I remember you, we, the only thing you ate during that week in New Orleans, you used to live entirely on Domino's Pizza, <laughs> yes. which was delivered to your room. You didn't go out carousing at all, did you, really? No, I was actually, um, I was dry at that point. And I, I'd, um, and I was dry for seven years from 1987, the end of the Madonna tour. Um, my, I'd been invited to a, a Madonna end of tour party and uh, made a spectacular dick of myself. <laughs> and, um, and what did my, you do in particular? Well, I, was, I, I do remember I had a broken ankle, which didn't help. Um, I'd broken my foot sort of playing, uh, uh, playing tennis. And um, so I was walking around with a walking stick, and I, I had this... Uh, I, just, I just had too much to drink. And so with the walking stick, I was poking Cavallo... Carvalho and Ruffalo, the, the Madonna's sort of management. lawyers and management, yeah. Yeah. in the chest saying... Uh, what a talented lady she is. And then prodding um, Sean Penn in the chest, uh, you know, because he, he, very, he very kindly said, um, Mark, I saw you on TV this morning. He said, you're a funny guy. And I just started prodding him in the chest, going, well, I think you're an effing great actor, mate. You know, you're not as tall as I thought you were, but I'll tell you. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just digging hole after hole after hole. <laughs> Anyway, this was, and this, the reason, there is some slight sort of, uh, you know, reason for this, and that is because earlier in the day, our, the, Polydor had thrown a party for us and Def Leppard. And so we'd been out to this, um, what was it called? Uh, Trader Joe's, uh, where we'd had a party, and it was sort of, off we go. So by the time we, we got back to the hotel at 5.30, Joe Elliott, um, and I were walking into the, the foyer of this lovely Four Seasons Hotel or whatever it was, and Joe just decided to lose it and was violently ill all over the, this lovely marble floor. And he was so sort of befuddled and embarrassed, he took his own coat off and covered it up. <laughs> Which I thought, it's great, it's like Walter Raleigh. It's like Walter Raleigh, that's right. Yeah. Over his own spew. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> I thought this was sort of quite funny. And anyway, then uh, one of Madonna's backing uh, singers or the band come over and said, Mark, well, hey, come on, man, we're all heading downtown. We're having an after-show party there. So I went, right, let's have this. So walking stick, off I go. And my manager, Paul Crockford, at the time said, um, don't go, Kinger, don't go, Mark. You know, it's a big, big mistake. I said, ah, it won't, it'll be brilliant. So he, of course, he's my manager, so he tags along to make sure I'm all right. 
I'm not sure he wasn't as drunk as I was, actually, at the time. But anyway, suffice to say, we went through this, this, uh, this dreadful night, which was great fun, but I, I just acted appallingly. And the next morning, sort of waking up with that thing of, oh, you know, little bits start coming back to you. And you think, oh, no, did I say that? Did I do that? I can't believe. And Crockford saw me at breakfast and he said, uh, yeah, he said, you're horrible when you're like that. And it just really, really sort of got, got to me because the last thing I want to be is horrible to anybody. There's, what's the point? You know, I'm a musician. I'm supposed to make people happy. And uh, so just because I'd had too much to drink to get like that, and I stopped and I never had another drink uh, for seven years. What made you resume? <laughs> my wife, my, my current wife, Rhea, she, she just said uh, that the, an accountant came down to stay for the weekend, like they do. You know. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> when you've got big problems. Uh, yeah, that. No, no, he said, uh, <laughs> that was great. And Steve yeah. said, um, buddy, because he's always very well spoken because he was quite a well-off accountant. And he said... Uh, <laughs> Bloody hell, King. He said, you should just lighten up, you know. He said, just have a drink, have a drink, have a puff on a cigarette. And Rhea just said, uh, if you want, go on, Mark. And I just thought, well, I don't know. And uh, anyway, I did. And, 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 but I sort of eased myself back into it because always at the back of my head has been this warning from my manager, Crockford, you know, you're bloody horrible when you're like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you didn't immediately grab a walking stick and start prodding people <laughs> in the chest. No, I was fully... <laughs> ankles were good, you know. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was strange, wasn't it? Because the culture that we've got in this country with drinking now is... Um, I suppose in a lot of ways you could say it's an embarrassment internationally because we always make fools of ourselves when we go away and the international football things and, uh, you, know, you know, on holiday, you know, in Torremolinos and all this, that and the other, it's like, hey, give us, give us some real beer and that sort of thing, uh, you know, which is... It, it is embarrassing, but... You know, back then, it, it was... Wine was quite a rare thing. There wasn't... You couldn't go down... You, you know, there weren't majestic warehouses yeah. everywhere. And, uh, you know, you could get... a Famously, Blue Nun. That was like the yeah, choice. Yeah. Black Tower. You know, the choice of yeah. white wines at the time and stuff. <laughs> yeah. and very sophisticated. Goodness, yeah, very sophisticated. <laughs> Bull's blood, you know, <laughs> Bulgarian red wine. <laughs> which was so vile. A, a bottle would... You'd, you would make a bottle last about four days. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, and you wouldn't know if it was corked or not anyway because it was just vile from the get-go. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, that, that was sort of how I sort of got back into it. And I do... I, you know, I keep my end of the bargain up now. I drink loads so, yeah. <laughs> good, good. going back it's traditional when we do these podcasts that we ask people what what kind of music playing equipment was there in your house when you were a child were there record players or? yes there were and i was lucky having two elder sisters uh blinda and rachel who one was a beatles fan uh, actually they were both beatles fans and my mum loved the rolling stones and I tied in completely to the Rolling Stones thing. This is like, I'm talking 1963, so it was the beginning of the whole thing. And there was that Christmas present when the, was it the Dan Set record player yeah. or whatever it was, came up. And there were sort of three 45s. There were two Beatles records, Love Me Do, I think, and, uh, and, and uh, Not Fade Away, a Rolling Stones single. Uh, and that was it. And I locked it. And my sister, Rachel, to this day, says, I always liked the Rolling Stones too. And I said, I'm sorry, Rachel. You didn't, you know, you liked the, the Beatles. Of course, now we all know 
uh, how great the Beatles are and how great the Rolling Stones are too. My wife just recently went to see them at the O2 and she said it's the, the best gig she's ever been to, which I found quite hurtful. Yeah. <laughs> very hurtful. Yes, yeah, very hurtful. Coupled with, he's so slim. And you go, oh. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. Uncork so, another... But, um, so there, yeah. there, was, we, we, there was... There was good stuff. And my mum and dad were young. I had young parents, you know. They, they, right. they were married. My mum was 17. My dad was 19 when they got married. Wow. And, uh, Blinda came along and... So, that, you know, I had these very young, you know, trendy parents. And they loved music, which was fantastic. So there was always, uh, you know, uh, when we... Uh, sort of got up to the age when I was eight and we got a radiogram. This oh, was really? stereo had arrived. And uh, I got my first Cream album. And uh, that was the epiphany for me. Was uh, Were you allowed to play the Queen album on the radiogram? Cream. The Cream, sorry, yeah. sorry. Were you allowed to play the Cream record on the radiogram? Well... Because Mark I'm... Ellen's father wouldn't let Yeah, him... he wouldn't let me because he said it would damage the stylus. <laughs> Yeah, he said pop yes. music. Pop music yeah. would damage the stylus. Can only play classical. Music. But that was always the, that was. The and I kind of believed him for a bit. And then thought, great pop music. It wrecks wasn't things. that the fantastic thing though about when the stylus to check that it was on? You always went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, always. Yeah, it didn't occur. And then, but your your, your friends who are more sort of intellectual would always go. And, yeah. and blow the fluff off. And yeah. if it was jumping, you'd put a pile of coins on yes, the top. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And how many warped <laughs> albums, you know. I think, oh, I yeah. think the, the McCream albums were uh, sort of warped. But the, what, what I used to do was, it was the same with the drum kit, because I got my first drum kit when I was nine years old. Mum and Dad were, were absolutely brilliant at supporting the fact that I, I just loved this stuff. And my dad, who was a prison officer, um, you know, he trained as a, a, a carpenter and a boat builder in Cows on the Isle of Wight. And, of course, as soon as he'd finished his apprenticeship, the whole boat building thing shut down. And then, uh, but here he was with three young, very young children, no house. Um, so he, he looked round and the civil service were offering... Because the Isle of Wight has been home to three prisons forever. Um, and they said, join the prison service, you get a house thrown in. And that was what pushed him into it, you know. Right. And as he always would later say, that, you know, if I hadn't been doing that, I'd probably been inside prison, you know. So yeah. what was it like growing up on the Isle of Wight when you were interested in music? Did you, did you immediately know all the other people who were interested in music? I mean, no. It, was it, it an enclosed community? No, it's, it's a, it, it, was, it was tough, actually, because records took that little bit longer to try and get hold oh, of. Really? Yeah, to absolutely. Come across from the mainland. Yes, you know, and <laughs> it was there was almost like a ten day turnaround. Oh, of, sure. You know, you, you'd I'd cycle yeah. to Newport furiously, and say, you know, sort of by this time, say the Mahavishnu Orchestra had come along for me at the age of fourteen, and I'd cycle in and uh, I'd go to uh, Happy Days Music or whatever it was, and say. Have you got the, the new Mahavishnu Orchestra record? I don't know what it's called. I can't remember. And, you know, this guy would go through the enemy or the billboard or whatever, and he'd go, mm, yeah, yeah, it's called uh, Inner Mounting Flame. And I'd say, can you get it in for me? And he went, yeah, I'll do that, you know. He said, can you pay for it? And you go, yeah, yeah, of course. And he said, right, it'll be in two weeks. <laughs> You'd have to this this agonising period of waiting for two weeks. But when that second week came, you know, you you jump on your bicycle and cycle the seven miles into town to get it, carry it home under your school blazer, get home. Wow, mum and dad are in fantastic radio gam lit up, thump, get it on, full whack, and the opening strains of uh, uh, Meeting of the Spirits starts, which has got to be one of the most enigmatic chord sequences ever. And um, oh, it was... 
just heaven. And you were a drummer then, weren't you? So yeah, so I was. Billy, yeah. Was he Billy Cobham? Was yeah, it was. was yeah, yeah, yeah. Billy Cobham. So that must have been part of it. Well, yeah. it was, a, it was it, like I said, this, these were real epiphanies for me because I, I did that thing, Cream had Ginger Baker, you know, the great Ginger Baker, who I've had the pleasure of playing with uh, not too long ago, which was interesting. How bad? Yeah, yeah, oh, go on. Yeah. Tell, <laughs> tell us about we, that. We, we take us a, a short... Detour yeah. into. Well, we can do that. He's like, like quite yeah. a short fuse, isn't he? Well, oh, a short fuse. <laughs> you, you can't get a word out before he's on your back. You yeah. know. It, no, it was. Um, you know, sadly, Jack Bruce passed away. Uh, you know, uh, 2014, I think, and 2015. They they had a on the anniversary of his death at the Roundhouse in London. Jack's family put together a tribute concert, and you know, they gave me a call. You know, singing bass player, and they're obviously known. I'd love Jack. Uh, all my life, uh, and he was my first real influence. You know, singing bass players were quite rare. I know the McCartney, and uh, you know, but th- it was a rare thing. So yes, you know, and Ginger Baker was my hero. Eric Clapton was my hero. Jack Bruce. Was anyway, wind forward. Then here I go. I'm a middle-aged man. I just watched this documentary called Beware of Mr. Baker. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, we, you know, where he which, attacks the journalist. Uh, you know this one, yeah, which opens. Yeah. The opening shot is him sort of breaking the nose. Well, funnily enough, with a walking stick. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. What is it with drummers and walking sticks? <laughs> no, it's true. You see a drummer with a walking stick, guys, she's crossed the road, yeah. right? Um, anyway, so, I, you know, I get the call to go in and we're rehearsing at John Henry's, this fantastic sort of historic rehearsal studios in North Seven, just up the road from here and um, I'm walked in and I bet you know I, I, it's great I had Sunshine of Your Love we were going to do the first and that's one of my favourite songs ever you know so I bought myself an old Gibson EB3 bass the same one that Jack used to use 1969 and um, so I showed up for rehearsals just in time to see this sort of <laughs> old gentleman walking across the, the, the you know the, the sort of concourse at John Henry's and I said Mr. Baker, pleased to meet you. And he went, what? <laughs> Hand cupping his ear. Yeah. What? He said, why are they playing guitar solo? You don't play F in solos. It's a rehearsal. F me. What are they going? And he sort of waddled off, chewing frantically. And I'm thinking, is he sort of on drugs? Turned out he'd just given up smoking and was going through Nicorettes. Like they were going out the store. He had the biggest wad. You know, he looked like an ageing... <laughs> An ageing hamster. <laughs> this was followed by this sort of sort of young, well, a young sort of middle-aged blonde lady comes waddling out, and she said, "You sit yourself down, Dad." And I said, "Oh, I said, how'd you do?" I said, I'm, "I'm playing with your father a bit later on," and she was just about to snarl, and then she went, "Oh." you're that yeah I love that oh what's that song you did Heaven in My oh something or other you know oh I'm very pleased to meet you Dad it's him (laughs) what (laughs) oh my goodness me anyway it was um, it was pretty I didn't realise that he that was it he'd walked out of rehearsal so I'm just showing up to right let's do this I walk into the room and there's Phil Manzanera and there's Ian Anderson and there's uh, oh, good, is that, that uh, Bernie Marsden? I can't remember. All the great guitarists. Now, there's so many amazing guitarists who've shown up to play this this thing. Uh, Nitin Sawney was MD. Uh, oh, you must forgive me. Um, Vernon Reed from Living Car, right. you know, was there. Yeah. Uh, Clem Clemson was there. Uh, so, anyway, um, I walked in and they're all looking quite ashen faced. Uh, and. Uh, I said, you're right, lads. And they went, oh, my, that was horrible. I said, he said, we played a minute and a half, and he just got up, shouted, and stormed out. 
And uh, so anyway, so that's ginger. That yeah, that's yeah. it. <laughs> <Yeah>. Ginger. <laughs> My favourite use of the term ginger baker was from Count Arthur Strong, who uh, in one of his radio shows said, um, well, it's unthinkable. That's like, uh, what, you can't have them not playing together? That would be like um, Fred Astaire without Ginger Baker. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Brilliant. <laughs> so you started off as a drummer. Started off as a drummer. You, you, came, you came to London. You got a job in the musical instrument shop. Yeah, yeah, I did. Charing Cross Road, Macari's Music. And right. It, it was a wonderful place. That was the one shop that didn't sell drums. Um, it, you know, every other every other store had drum kits in, and I went into every one. And they, no mate, you know, got a job. No mate, got a job. No mate, no mate, you know. Um, Macari's was was it was it was also known as the Vox Shop. Uh, they had a ton of guitars, loads of accordions, which was a bit of a you know turn off when yeah. you're 19. Yeah. And. Um, but it turned out to be, they were lovely. Joe and Larry McCurry were fantastic. Hired me. Um, more as a, uh, what would you call it, a, a, an odd jobber. Because they'd say, Mark, you, could you stick a bit of this, that and the other up? Because I was always quite handy with the hammer and nails and stuff. So I used to put up soundproof booths for them and bits and pieces. You know, keep them away from the till. I think that was the, that was the, the ethos. But the, it gave me the, this opportunity to, to sit and watch. Because, of course, it's right on Charing Cross Road. All the theatres, you're in the middle of theatre land there. And, and of course, you, you get these touring American shows that come over and you get some of the best musicians that just come walking in, fantastic keyboard players, you know, get on the roads and suddenly it sounds like, it's, it sounds like Chick Corea's or Herbie Hancock. And this is right up my street. And you get the old bass player come in and he'd sort of slap the bass and I'm thinking, what is this? You know, what is this guy doing? Because it looks to me like he's drumming on the bass. So that coupled with, you know, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays are a bit slow, lots of time. I'll so so this is down. A, so you, you've got your interest in Mar Vishnu Orchestra and, and yeah. what we would now call jazz rock, I suppose. Yeah, jazz fusion, but, yeah. Yeah, but it, there wasn't much of this on television or anything like that. So if you, no. wanted, to, if you wanted to see how somebody did something, yeah. which presumably is really important. Well, to it's interesting that you say that, David, because I'm, I'm left-handed. I'm naturally left-handed. I'm right left-handed. I do most things I leave on my left but it was only because I'd ever um, watched musicians playing on TV that it didn't occur to me that you could play drums left-handed so I set them all up right-handed which as it turns out is quite a good exercise for a young kid to do in terms of independence because really you want to lead with your left and, and, and work that way but uh, because it, it seemed to me that every no, I'd never seen anybody set the drums up left-handed. When I saw Phil Collins play left-handed, I was like, what? You know, nobody said you could put the hi-hat over there. You know, this is also because my dad told me that he used to play... He told me he, he was a great drummer. He told me he was a great drummer. <laughs> yeah. So when he got the first drum kit, he never, um, he never actually got on the drums and played. But he set it up and I went, there you go, son. <laughs> And so there it was. It was sort of right hand set up and, and off I went, you know. But it doesn't matter. When you're a kid, you can do anything, can't you? It just, you suck it all in and, and do the whole thing. So you very quickly switched to bass. Well, it, it wasn't quick. You know, I'd been, I'd started drums when I was nine and now I was 19 in London. So for 10 years. And I was actually pretty good. You know, I could have been a good drummer. You know, my best mate at the time, Phil Gould, who was the first drummer in level 42. And is, a, is an awesome drummer. Um, that's how we became friends is because we both felt that we were on another level to these guys and our heroes were the, the likes of Bert, Billy Cobham, Lenny White, Tony Williams, Buddy Rich <clears throat> and you know the, the lovely thing about the job 
that I've got is is that as the years have passed, Billy Cobham's come in and, you know, played with us three or four times. We've done a, a couple of nights at Ronnie Scott's guesting for Bill Cobham too. And that's that's a real feeling when you... You, you turn up to rehearsals, which Bill doesn't rehearse a lot, by the way, which is another story entirely. But, the you know, he's the most incredible guy at picking stuff up on the fly. But just to suddenly catch myself and look round and go, this is the guy that I was knocking one out about, you know, when I was 14. It was just incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't really. <laughs> so how much of it when you were 14 was just that kind of showing off side of it you know do you, you ever have a tra- tennis racket and pose well, in front of the mirror and pretend you were John McLaughlin or Stanley no, no, Clark I didn't, or whatever you I, didn't do that I didn't because the last thing I wanted to do was stand there with a the guitar I wanted to play drums right. it really was a passion you know it's just that circumstance prevailed and when you know, when the band started in 19... Right at the end of 1979, which, incidentally, the reason that me and Mike Lindup and Phil Gould got on so well and met up was because I met Mike for the very first time in Oxford Street and he was carrying a pair of Billy Cobham drumsticks. So the conversation was, oh, yeah, you know. So straight away, that told me. It's like the Masonic was handshake. Was he walking around with these things, yes, hoping to did, be recognised? Yes, he was. Not to be recognised. By another drummer. No, but it's just like, this is this is it's the secret sign, you know. <laughs> Something under your lapel, sir. What's that? It's a pair of Billy Cobham drumsticks. <laughs> We're going to get on. <laughs> Strange, eh? But that's drummers for you. Right, right. When they have London Drum Week, right, there's... All the, all the park with benches are empty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you must be a rare case of somebody who started off as a drummer and, and moved to mastering a kind of well, it's another it was, instrument. If you sort of go back to when I'd sort of in Macari's and I watched these guys would come in every so often and start playing, you know, and it. Like, as I said, it seemed to me like they were drumming on the bass. Right. I wasn't too worried about the notes, you know, and uh, my advice to anybody starting is get, get your right hand going. If you're a right-handed player, make it swing. You don't have got to grab the strings. You don't have to worry about notes, but you've got to make it go... Get some rhythm going, because that's what makes people dance. That's what makes it sound great. Uh, the, the people that sit there and go, the chord of E is, and they sort of... St- push their fingers around and then with their right hand that should be making this thing swing they go blank and it sounds horrible that's me <laughs> straight away yeah. Yeah. straight away they sort of turn themselves off because it even sounds dreadful to them you know so the great advice for me is not make it swing so back to the the the, the bass playing thing if you thump with your thumb right like, like this and with your left hand you hammer on you it's it's a bit like percussion so and that that's it that so that was how i right. approached really? playing the bass really? and when level 42 first started what sort of songs i mean this is quite early on we're looking at a picture of about four years ago i'd say <laughs> <laughs> what were you playing when you started were you doing cover versions or anything like this no we, no we didn't we we never did that we um we we always we because we used to rehearse on a monday evening at the guild school of music where mike lindup was studying 
Phil was studying at the Royal Academy of Music. So these, you know, these, these were the guys who'd done it, were doing it the right way. Right. Boone, the, uh, Phil's older brother, and uh, my best friend, we shared a squat together in Walthamstow and, uh, we, you know, fed ourselves every day on Peter's steak pie and uh, it's a Cadbury smash, you know, instant mashed potato. <laughs> yeah. And that was it. Luxury. That was our contribution to uh, fine living. But the... Um, no, we didn't. We, we only ever wanted to play our own music. And that was it. And, we, and our set list, we, we had one gig. That our very first ever gig was at the Students' Union Hall at the Guildhall School of Music. And, you know, Mike had worked it out when we got this thing. And, and it was, the set list was funky riff number one, Latin-y vibe was number two, um, funky bit going into jazz section, number three, and and it was it, and these are just riffs, which is is exactly how the first album came about, because it's really just a series of riffs that we chopped around together, that we love playing. We didn't give a monkey if anybody else liked it, which incidentally at the students' union hall they didn't, because <laughs> we just got about four bars into number three, the funky bit going into the jazzy bit, and this sort of ginger head bloke came over and went, "That's enough, lads. Thank you very much." <laughs> People can't hear themselves talk, and it was like, so what? Should we turn down? And he went, no, no, just finish. <laughs> that was that. So that was our first, our first ever gig. But it didn't, it didn't matter, you know. That when you, the, it was, it was great sitting in listening to Mark Commode talk, Commode yeah. talk earlier on, because that want to be in a band and, and just playing with your friends is so powerful and and so driving it's very hard to it, it, it's very hard to sort of remember a time when it wasn't like that um it was that exciting and it was that you know i didn't care if i didn't have enough money to get home to the squat in walthamstow i didn't care if i didn't have enough money for a peter's pie the next day all i cared about was that i managed to blag a bass guitar off of my friend um martin and, and I'd show up at the Guildhall because, because incidentally, I'd lost my drums. I'd done this. This is another story, but I'd, I'd travelled out to Austria to join a band as a drummer, which, which is where I thought it was all going to go. And it never happened. And they said, oh, well, you know, we're all a bit broke, Mark, but I'll tell you what, we'll give you the money for a ticket home. We'll just hang on to your record collection and your drums. And, you know, me, I'm just a kid from the Isle of Wight. I went, thanks, lad, you will send them back, won't you? And they went, yeah, of course, <laughs> yes, yes, very soon, you know. And they never did. So three months later, I, I sort of managed to save up enough money to take the train ticket out there. And there were just two of the drums left in this shop window. My record collection was completely gone. And it was sort of with some... Because I was quite sort of tasty back then, uh, for, you know, physically. So I, I had no problems walking into the shop and going, oh, you, that's my symbol, give me that, where's the rest of it? And, oh, Mark, no, it's, uh, I don't know, I don't know what's happening. So I, I came back all the way from Austria with a cymbal stand, a cymbal, and uh, like an old snare drum. <laughs> that was it. So my drums were gone. Thank goodness I could fall back on the bass. And there was an early... Yeah, there was an early tour. I think it would have been 81 after you got signed, I think, where you were doing Caster Soul Weekenders. Yes. Was that right? About 1980. And just describe what those events were like, because I I don't know if that kind of thing exists anymore, but it was a big deal at the time. It it was a massive deal. And the thing is, it it probably made more sense to me than anybody else that showed up there going, what the hell is this? Um, Because I'd grown up on the Isle of Wight, and my whole playing history sort of since from the age of 11 when I was playing in Pseudo Foot which is the band I played in was playing in holiday camps 
Um, Sorry. Yeah. Name of group again? Pseudo Foot. Pseudo Foot. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Do you know what that means, don't you? Go on. It means something? It means false foot. <laughs> I, I suppose it does. Yes, it was yeah. just one of those things. I was so excited to be in this band that I, I had this little wooden cabinet that um, I bought. Because I always remember sort of seeing, see like backstage on this photograph for the listener at home. We're looking at a photo here and there's a flight case on the side of the stage. And so, so from the age of nine, flight cases seemed to be important to me. And Dad had this old medicine chest or something, and I painted it red and wrote pseudo foot on it in crayon. (laughs) (laughs) You thought you'd arrived there. I thought I'd arrived, yeah. 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 I thought I'd arrived. So when you... I mean, there's always that feeling with Level 42 that they kind of connected with this this big audience of kind of people who like going out and dancing. Is that that the case? Well, we we were sort of... We were taken under the wing... Uh, because Andy Soyker, our first producer who had Elite Records, he was an independent record label owner, uh, and he worked out of a studio in, in North London with Jerry Pike, his sort of co, his, his mate. And they they came along to see us rehearse once. We had about five of these funky number one riff, that, that <laughs> whole thing again. Yeah. None of which impressed them at all, except for one riff that we played uh, which became the first song called love meeting love and um so he said oh, we'll record this for you and um and that, that's what that's what they did it was uh and my head i can so many things i could go off on a million tangents it's right, right. impossible especially with early onset which i'm convinced i've got right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the soul weekenders see i mean how, yes yeah, what uh, would describe because they, they sounded absolutely it, right it was wild it was absolutely wild you know and they were actually run by the the the, the dj's uh, the sort of they called themselves the funk mafia and it was a collection of dj's um uh, Robbie, what's his name? Vincent. From, yeah, Robbie Vincent. Yeah. Uh, there was just that he was sort of like the head man because he had this serious radio show. But then there were all the acolyte DJs around him, and they were the guys that put these gigs together. Obviously, making a few bob out of it, um, which was fair enough. But then they get, you know, the, so they'd hire in the local bands that happening like Light of the World and, and Central Line and Level Forty Two and uh, Links. Um, shack attack. Uh, so we we were sort of, we were all we were all brought along to to, to sort of play. And, and you'd go up. I don't know. You'd be going on at sort of two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, and then you do it again the next night. And everyone would sort of stagger home Monday morning, having sort of kicked off Friday afternoon. These were very. You know, the whole rave thing is nothing new to us because we we were living through it. Um, right back then, you know. But then there's nothing new under the sun, is there? I'm sure Mum and Dad were doing it. So these are these are some of your base heroes we're looking at here. Yeah. Is that yeah, yeah. is that right? Absolutely, yeah. We're looking at a picture of uh, the great Stanley Clark up the top there, and then next to him is Bootsy Collins. Um, you, you know, Bootsy was sort of funk personified, and I, I love the stories of Bootsy. I think as much as any of his bass lines is that um, there's one great quote from him that is that they were touring, uh, they were sort of well into this into the jungle groove vibe and were touring in Germany at the time. And he'd taken a, uh, a tab of acid, you know, which is never advisable when you're going to go on stage. And he said that during the third song, the neck of his bath turned, 
turned into a python and started attacking him. He said, I just took the bass off and threw it on the floor. He said, I was having no part of that shit. <laughs> and then he said, needless to say, that ended my love affair with the Godfather of Soul and he was fired immediately. <laughs> but St- Stanley Clark was, was just a phenomenon in terms of the technique and, um, you know, what he started. And that would have been my first experience of hearing someone hit playing with his thumb. And you can see in that photograph there, he's giving it some. And, and as part of Return to Forever, uh, which were the band that came along for me sort of just after the Mahavishnu Orchestra, this opened up a, a whole other thing. Because where I've been focusing on perhaps the drums more... I mean, Lenny White in, in Return to Forever was just phenomenal. I actually went to his house when I was 17... 1976, um, Freddie Laker had started this great idea of like cheap flights yeah, yeah, to, yeah. to America. And I'd written, in 1975, I'd written a letter to Lenny White's house in America, wherever the hell it was, um, saying, you know, is there any advice you can give me? You know, I'm a young and coming drummer, I love everything you're doing. And I was 16 when I wrote the letter. And a year later, I got a letter back, which was just incredible. I, sort of, I didn't expect to get anything back. And I've still got the letter on my wall at home. It was, it's lovely. And it just says, um, oh, Mark, thanks for writing to me. It just gave me all this wonderful advice. But it ended with, don't forget, Mark, in life, a man makes his own chances. And then put his address underneath, which I took as meaning, so you should come to my house. <laughs> Was well, he thrilled to see you? Yeah. Well, the thing is, right, I, I went, I travelled all the way there, saved up my money, got this cheap flight out there, which wasn't cheap when you're 17, you know, everything's cost a fortune. Um, and I went there and I found this place in uh, uh, Queens, in New York, knocked on his door, <laughs> and his wife answered. She was so charming. And I said, oh, hello. I said, I'm Mark King from the Isle of Wight. No, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I wrote, I, wrote a letter, I wrote to Lenny last year. And she said, oh, sure, yeah, the kid from the Isle of Wight. Yeah, how are you? You know, what, what can I do for you? And I said, well, uh, you know, is Lenny in? She said, no, he's in California. <laughs> I said, California? It's like three and a half thousand miles away. So I think she saw my lips starting to go, you know, and, and I was filling up. And she said, but don't, she said, it's okay, honey. He'll be back in six days' time, which is the day before I was due to go home. She said, if you can leave me a number, anyway... Lenny got back, he called me up, said, come on over. Fantastic. It was amazing. And, amazing. and I went to Lenny White's house and I met, it, it, there was him. And he played me the very first hearing, probably anyone outside of, the, of his circle had heard of um, Tales of the Astral Pirates, which is an album he just made. And Don, Don Blackman, the great Don Blackman, who was his producer, was there with him. And he, he took me to his basement. He spent the whole afternoon with me. And there was... He had this drum kit set up, which didn't sound anything like. It wasn't what I was expecting at all, because I was going, Len, you know, Len, your, your toms are all high. I said, but the snare's really low. He said, yeah, that's for jazz, Mark. This one's for jazz. And then there was this orange drum kit in the corner, sort of stacked up. And he said, that's Mike Shreve's kit, you know? And all, the, all, this, all these people, because I'd love Mike Shreve since I'd heard yeah. Caravan Sarai, uh, you know, Santana stuff. What a sweetheart, eh? Yeah. Absolutely lovely. So uh, you do know? you ever get anybody turning up at your double stand? Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I go, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not nice like Lenny White is. No, so. no, no. I should do it with a walking stick now, shouldn't I? Definitely the walking stick. <laughs> Just one more bass-related uh, uh, question. I, I can remember in the, in the mid-'80s, you know, there was a, a story presumably invented by a PR that you had your, your thumb insured. For 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 a million dollars three, or something, three million, no, three million, three million, three million pounds, pounds sterling, which yeah. I'm sure we ran in smashes. We thought it was a 
terrific story, but I can't imagine this was true. It, yeah, well, it, it was true, actually. It, the, the, in, um, you know, 87, we re-signed Apollodor Records. And we, you know, we'd done great. 1986, I think we damn near saved Polydor in the UK. I think we were their biggest selling artist. And, um, uh, and that's important to them, you know. And, and, of course, they don't know that you're just going to fall off the edge of the world and disappear up your own jacksie. So they're, <laughs> they're, they figure this is probably a good bet, you know. And um, so they advanced us this whopping great advance, you know. Um, and just to cover it, they because they, they knew I had a penchant for chainsaws and tractors and stuff, because I, I like it. I'm, a, I'm come from farming stock on the Isle of Wight, that's it, you know. So I, and I still do, I, you know, I, I build barns and all of that, and I love it. I, I love being in the garden. But of course, that, you know, leads to like, whoop, there goes a leg, and uh, <laughs> that's it. And they, just, they said, so we'll do it. And of course, it made a good story. But they really did insure it, you know. So, uh, and that was a that was a headline hundreds of times, oh, wasn't it? Was, yeah. Well, you Pope. brought it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Still remember it. That's all it takes, isn't yeah, it? To, yeah. to get a load of press out absolutely, of it. Absolutely, yes. It's the one thing everyone knew about Mark King. Oh, he's, yeah, everyone say at parties. Oh, he's got his thumb insured for three million yeah. pounds. Well, so a, a journalist recently asked me, he said, tell me something that um, you think people won't know about you, Mark. And I said, I've got seven chickens. And it just went dead. It had no effect at all. No. Never came out in the article. No. <laughs> so you're better off saying my thumbs insured for three million. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you had, you had that period, didn't you, in the, in the, in the mid eighties when you're on the giddy carousel of pop stardom, weren't you? You were yeah, we 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 chart really did singles do it. and we we really did do it. You know, we, we what's the most ludicrous sort of... thing you did during that time? What did, was the one moment where you thought, what am I doing here? More ludicrous than being painted yeah, blue. Uh, yeah. It was actually, it was, it was, it would have been 1985, and I've been invited to be part of the Princess Trust Rock Gala 10th birthday anniversary. And um, it was Alton John that said, Yo, you know, get Mark in to play bass, and Eric Clapton was in the band, Phil Collins, Mark Knopfler. Um, it, it just went on and on and on, you know. The, the, the stars that were coming on, Bowie came up and sang a song with, Jack, with Mick Jagger. Uh, George Michael came on and sang. It was just this heady thing. But that moment of walking up my stand, and of course, mid-year was MD, MD in the whole thing, and is one of the reasons we became such good friends. Um, but standing, waiting to be announced on stage in Wembley Arena, and looking down the, the steps, because obviously the bigger the star, the, the, the later you come on, and so I was sort of on second, I think. <laughs> After the announcer, <laughs> who, who did his Harry, you know, uh, Huey Green thing of please welcome on stage and whoever he was. And <laughs> next up, Mark King. And so, that, but before that bit, I looked back down the steps, and there was Elton John and Eric Clapton and uh, you know Phil Collins and Mark Knopfler, and everybody looked scared to death, and I just thought. This is amazing because we all have this feeling of what are we doing here, and that goes as soon as as soon as the place goes. Something happens inside of you, and you go, "Yeah, this is it. This is mine. This is I'm meant to do this. This is what I'm meant to do." But for that brief moment yeah. before that happened, the look of terror in everybody's eyes was palpable. You know, you, you might as well have put a gun out and shot because <laughs> that, that's what they were expecting. You know. So do you find the nervousness, it's quite interesting this, do you find the nervousness never goes away? No, not ever, not ever, David. You know, we're, we're out on tour again in, in a couple of weeks' time and I'm, I'm already getting the dreams. I have nightmares. You just have this lead-up to the nightmares where you walk out and there's three people in this massive hall and they're not really 
paying attention. And then you, there's, there's a big thing and then your gear's not working. And all of this stuff, there's so much that can go wrong. And all of that sort of bubbles up when you're just getting ready to prep for it. And in the meantime, people are sort of emailing you and stuff again. Oh, can you do a phone? And you go, I can't do a phone. I'm not sleeping. You know, and so that tension is always there. It's always been there since day one, you know, and it's, it's quite sparky. But I couldn't imagine doing it without having something like that. Uh, without having that feeling, because I think that's the thing that keeps you sharp. I would hate to go on stage, you, you know, I mean, I know I'm doing it now, but I would hate to go on stage with my bass and not be able to cut the mustard and, and perform when people go, well, he's not, you know, they're not as good as they were. But presumably there's that a moment one. when you I think you've, you've, you've won the crowd, you've, 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 you've done it, you know. Well, it's when, it's when you, the, the roar greets you. And that must happen you know, often, when you, just when you go on stage. Yeah, that's so, it. And, and they're so pleased to see you. Yeah. And it is this lovely feeling of like, oh, yeah, now we're going to have the best time ever. You know? Do you ever look out at the crowd and kind of connect with individuals? Or do you look at the I connect of- a lot. There's a lot of forehead in my audiences these days. <laughs> our, our, our demographic is uh, very dandruff-free, I would say. <laughs> Do you, I'm interested in this. Do you look at the people who are having a great time or do you look at the odd one who might not appear to be having a great time and try to win them over? Well, it never happens, David, but... Right. <laughs> I do... Uh, you know, it, of course that happens. There is... There's always that thing, you know. And it, it's the same as, you know, like, uh, you know, 100 people can tell you the best thing they've ever seen. And one person can say, well, you know, I thought the sound was horrible. And that's the one you just remember. That's the one that sort of sticks in your head and the one that makes you go, ah, you know. Get the sound guy up here yeah. immediately. Because musicians can be completely haunted by, by one person kind of walking out. They're probably just going to make a phone call or going to the loo or something. Yeah. And they can yeah. just be completely well, obsessed you know, by the idea, what have I done? But the th- people the are leaving. Wo- I'll tell you, Mark, the thing that kills me more than anything are overzealous security people who say, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a, a dance band, you know, that our, that our music's dance-oriented. And I want people to get up and dance, you know. Sit down in the ballad, now get up again, here off we go. But these people that sort of whiz around in high-vis, Jackets going, sit down, sit down, sit down. And I'm, I, I've even, you know, I'm, th- there was the, the last gig we did at the Apollo in 2016, the last of the UK tour. I recorded it, and there's this big bit where I'm going into Tehran. I'm saying, No, you're all right, love. In the middle of a song, we're playing. And I'm going, Hey, yeah, security lady. That's it. And I said, No, they can dance. It's okay. Let them, and then I have to just say, Go and get the tour manager. And, and it's so frustrating. Yes, I understand about health and safety and fire hazards, but she's a bloody fire hazard, walking up and down, dressed in cladding. You know, Didn't get any of that at the case to weekend. Out the we're having a nice <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, so you, that, that's the kind of the classic lineup of, you know, level yeah. 42 when you, yeah. in the mid-'80s when you had a load of hits and the Gould brothers left. Yeah, that was hard. Really, it must be really hard. It was. It, it was really, really hard because it, it because it, it didn't just suddenly happen. There'd been this sort of breakdown of 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 the fun of it all for the sort of preceding two years, and and that sort of two year period, as I've sort of found out latterly in life, is just always this amount of time it seems to take you from the moment you think actually there's something wrong here to the moment it finishes. Be that. Up with a divorce or whatever, flipping Brexit, right. you know this 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 thing of you think, hang on, this isn't this. There's something not right here. That it's you know that the thrill is gone, as you know the blues player sang, 
and then it takes you that long because nobody wants to make a move, nobody wants to say anything. But you're still going out, you're still touring, you're working hard. In fact, we were working harder and harder and harder, which only compounded the problem, really. And, and it's, I don't think any of us were old enough or mature enough to sit down and say, well, OK, look, you know, this is what's going on. We just never did it. We were all so heads down. And, and that's the thing is because remember that you, you, without taking a break, you start from that moment when we're all just rushing up to the Guild or School of Music to practice on a Monday night, funky theme, going into a jazzy bit, number two, or whatever. And now suddenly, you know, you're playing, uh, you know, eight nights at Wembley Arena, um, and they're all sold out. And that's on the back of the fact you've just come out, you toured with Madonna, now you're flying over to Germany because you're number one in Germany. Then you've got to fly back over to Los Angeles to do some TV show there and stuff. And it, I remember that it got so bad with flights... I'm not, I don't, I'm not scared of flying, but it, it depresses me. That the, the amount of time you'd have to sit on an aeroplane for 13 hours. And then you do it, and then you think, well, after we've done the show tomorrow, I'm going to sit on another 13 hours. And it seemed like such a colossal waste of life, of your time, you know. And, and there weren't the entertainments then, you know. There was one grainy film up the yeah. front that just used to sort of burble away. It was so... That was depressing. And I'm sure... I'm sexual that's exactly what Boone felt and what Phil How did felt. they announce Are they were leaving? Yeah, cool. Well, Boone, Boone left first of all, actually. Phil had already been making noises. I mean, every time he had a meeting at the accountants, he said, I've just got to let you know this is... Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm off in two months. And, and he said it so often. It was the boy You didn't Wolf. believe it? No, we didn't. And, and so, you know, and, and because then, then we'd have the meeting in six months' time and he'd go, right, that's it, I'm really off this time. And, we, you know, everyone was going, yeah, right, you know. I've got to interrupt. I'll tell you a story about Bill Wyman. Bill Wyman told me this. When he decided to leave the Rolling Stones at the end of a tour, he said, count me out. I won't be here next time. 18 months later, they rang him up and said, rehearsals on Monday. He said, no, I've left. Really? I thought you were joking. <laughs> you can't leave the Rolling Stones, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's no process of resignation, is there? You know? No. You don't have an annual review where people say, how's it, how's it yeah. going? Yeah. Where, do you, where do you want to be in two years' time? Yes. You know, where where you see I see myself on? not in the Rolling I Stones. I, I, played <laughs> with, I played with Bill and his Rhythm Kings. We did a, a charity show, oh, you know, about four or five years ago, and Bill was so sweet because he... You know, he's the great Bill Wyman, and there's that whole history. And bearing in mind, 1963, that was the band I loved. You know, Ooh. I wasn't so keen on the Beatles. Um, and he came up and he went, Mark, i just got to say, he said that Lessons in Love was our song, he said, me and Mandy. And, of course, that when he was going through this sort of <laughs> highly <laughs> thing affair. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. And he just said it was our song, Mark. You know, and he said, I just want to thank you for all the, you know, happy memories. And I'm like, hey, uh, <laughs> yeah. You'll have to be a part of it. <laughs> so, you know, as we refer, you referred to it earlier, you know, that, that, that uh, when the ghouls left, you got in Gary Husband and, uh, and yeah. Alan Murphy, who we're looking at a picture there on, yeah, on, yeah, on the yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, he was... He, he played with Kate Bush and all kinds of people. Everybody, Scritti Politti. Uh, Al, Al was the, the go-to session guitarist, which is how he came to be in the band, actually, David. Um, we, we were recording an album at Miraval, 
and Boone had left the band. Even though he was writing the songs for me, that was what was really great about the Staring at the Sun album. It's because Boone had left, but that's all right. It's sort of, he just said, I can't do the live thing anymore. I just don't want to do it anymore. Right. But, you know, but here's some songs. And, uh, and that was brilliant. So who did we get in? And we tried a couple of guitarists that, that it didn't, they didn't fit in. And Al Murphy came out just to do a session on one song, and he was so good so great and we got on so well and I, I asked him I said um, I said can you recommend anybody out that have come out I said because I'm getting up against it here we're off out again in two months and he said well how about me mate how about me and uh, I said what seriously and he said yeah he said I, you know he, he, I think he, his time had run out with Go West so he, he'd left the Go West thing and um, and that was it and we had the best 18 months really and I never knew that he had AIDS he never ever spoke about the fact that he, he was HIV positive um, and he never spoke about his private life you know that uh, he was gay but he, he was um, you, you know he never ever talked to me about it you know the, 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 the nearest we got to it was when in a sort of duke, walking through a duty free in an airport one day we were sort of stood at the perfume counter and he said, uh, and there was a picture of a, a lad on a perfume bottle, you know, on a pack. And he said, oh, he needs a good wash. And, and that was sort of the, that, that was the nearest I'd ever sort of got to, to the fact that, you know, Al was gay and stuff. And, and um, you know, not that it would have made any difference whatsoever at all. But the very fact that we didn't know that he was HIV positive, even though towards the end he was looking really, really poorly. Yeah. And it didn't occur to me. It's the same thing as, like, not saying to Phil, what's your problem then? What's this, that and the other? I was so just sort of heads down. It's, it's probably my own fault. It's one of the things that we come up with again and again in, the, in talking to musicians and word in your ear is bands never talk. No. They never discuss anything. And the bigger an issue it is, the more guaranteed they are not to talk about it. No, and they never bloody listen either. <laughs> so it wouldn't matter if you said anything. Yeah. But it just builds up and builds up and builds up until it, at one point it explodes, isn't it? I mean, it, it, well, it, ju- it, just, it just falls apart. Yeah. You know, I, I, there was no explosion with us. It was just like, well, that's it. You know, and then everybody else tried to make out that, that there was something worse. And I think that was the hardest part, was like then trying to sort of go on and say, well, no, I didn't, you know, all the things I've just said to you now, it didn't occur to me. And it just really didn't. But everyone's saying, ah, oh, but there must have been some real acrimony in this, that and the other. No, not really. Only now it suddenly occurred to me that actually, that turn 1985, Phil never spoke to me once. But, it, yes, you know, you just, I don't know. I was so, we were all in it together, all at the same time, all starting from nothing. And now suddenly here we are. And the only way you sort of get through it is to stick, get your head down and get on with it, you know. You, the, the, I've got a picture here of the, uh, the, the group that you been in with um, mm. with Stuart Copeland and Adrian Ballou um, I mean is that just because people like being in groups you know yeah you know absolutely um, Stuart sort of texted me two years ago April two years ago I said hey Mark I want to cut a record in Milan and you know and I just texted him I said yeah you know when when do you want me there and I was there seven days later and we, we spent ten days in the studio you know, I, I, I'm a massive Adrian Ballou fan. He was fantastic. And meeting Vittorio Cosma, who was the producer come keyboard player. And Vittorio Cosma was the keyboard player in PFM. Oh, right. And, and okay. we, recorded, we recorded the album in the original PFM studio. So this is old 1970s 
fantastic uh, sort of look to the place. But I've I've known Stuart since 1986. We did um, a Wogan show together, one of the first Children in Need shows, actually. Um, and he wanted to put together... He'd been asked by Terry to, to put together a, a super group that would sort of get people watching. So he invited me, and, and uh, I got Nick Kershaw in to play guitar. We had um, Mark Brzezicki on drums from Big Country and uh, Rowan Atkinson on tambourine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Rowan, is, he was absolutely dead keen on it. You know, he loves his prog. Yeah, and, it's big uh, prog and quite a heavy metal. Yeah, he is. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely. So he was, you know, like it, it wasn't given at the Mr. Bean face, but it was, he was because he was concentrating so hard and he was loving it, you know. And we played this song, um, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, and it was great fun. And Stuart's always sort of had that in the back of his mind. So when he sort of wanted to put this this gizmodrome thing, because he just, you know, the way he puts it, Stuart's is so larger than life, you know, and is such a driving force, it's incredible. And I can see how he w- would have fallen out with Sting yes. and, you know, uh, and Andy Summers and how that thing went. But when you're with Stuart, it's exactly the same thing. He's just being him. And, and, and that's what makes it great. And at the same time, it's the very thing that it almost wants... It, it destroys it as well. You know, it sort of starts pulling it apart. Do you get, do you get asked to do things and you turn around and Stuart Copeland's there or Midgeur's there or whatever, and you think, oh, the 80s, you know, that I'm bracketed with the 80s. Well, do I you am. mind that? I don't mind it at all, no, no, not, not in the slightest. I mean, I am. You know, that was my time. That, that was the, the period that I was doing stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I think it would be odd if... Um, you know, Conor Moccasin was to give me a shout and say, hey, Mark, could you come and ruin my record for me? You know, <laughs> by slapping all over it for no fucking reason. That, that would be odd, you know. Or Christine and the Queens or something, you know, saying, Mark, just come and ruin this for us, will you? No, it's, a, you, know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm on my time and I know... But, you know, we, we wrote great songs too and a great song's always going to be a great song. And uh, Well, maybe not great songs, but we wrote some good songs. And this, this is and uh, this is Richard Taylor in the last. Well, that's that's recent tour. Is that yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Recent well, this, tour. Is, this is us eternity tour 2018. I wanted to ask you a question about groups generally. That um, they they all start off with three or four members and then end up with eight or nine. <laughs> yeah, well, what, it's it, it, why it, is that? Well, I'll tell you why. Why it is one of the reasons is is that there's you know. The, I love playing the songs, I love playing the level songs and then you, you get a sax player in and the sax player sort of adds to it so you do a couple of tours like that and then you get to do something like with the Prince's Trust show and you play like Slave to the Rhythm and, um, and then you have this amazing brass in there too and then just at the back of your mind you think oh, I'd love that, I'd love to have that you know, on and so we get uh, we get Dan and Nicole in on trumpet and trombone to enhance Sean on saxophone, and it's a really big—it's a big sound. Right. And, and there's that thing then of like it will seem odd, sort of going away from it. Having said that, Mike and I—we we, we did a thing for the BBC recently. We just went in, just the two of us, and played a couple of sort of acoustic versions, um, and that was really sweet as well. You know, so. I don't know. It's it's not because I want lots and lots of players on stage. It's just because it makes a really good sound. Right. And, and, and they're also good fun to be around. Are you doing a lot of festivals in we the do. last few yeah. years? Yeah. How do you find those? Love it. I love festivals, you know. Um, they're, they're, they're great to do. They're great because do you, if you're on top of your game, you can pick up a lot of new fans at festivals. Um, you know, we played Love Supreme this year and... 
uh, we, we went on just before Elvis Costello. And so, obviously, this is an unpartisan audience. A bit like tonight, everyone's here to see Mark Commode, and, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, but I'm winning you over. Come on. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, if, if the band's really good, if the band's good, and that, that's the only thing, really, I, I care about, is that I want the band to, to cut the mustard on stage. I'm a musician, you know. I'm not the world's greatest songwriter. I'm certainly not the world's greatest singer. But I'm, I'm a musician, and so... I will put on a a good show, you know. So you're about to tour in the UK? Yeah, yeah, we're out on 2nd... We start in Glasgow on the 2nd of October. We finish at the Royal London Albert Hall, which I can't read right. Yeah, the the Royal Albert Hall in London on the 25th, and then the next night we're off in Heerlen in Holland, I think, and we've got another 12 shows out there. And on it goes. And and I'll... Do you like being on the road? Uh, Being on the road's... All right, it's a bit like a boys' club because it's it is it's you know it's not it's not like it was when we started. We're not all in the back of a transit, you know. We have these very lovely tour buses, which are horrendously expensive, I have to say. But there's actually a method to the madness because everybody gets there. The, the crew have a, bu- a bus, we have a bus, and you know where everybody is all the time. You know, it must have been a nightmare. I always sort of have to think back to why band leaders like Miles Davis or Buddy Rich or, uh, you know, Frank Sinatra, for example, were always such bullies. And that's because, could you imagine trying to get a band that size all to be in the same place the next night, you know, when they're all out of razzling and sort of knocking off the local wives and, (laughs) you know, getting high on whatever it is they're doing and then expect them to show up and do a gig. Well, you put everybody on the same bus, you know. I remember Paul Crockford, your manager, saying in in the lobby of a hotel in Los Angeles, standing there waiting for the band, he says, what is it about the ability to play a musical instrument that is inconsistent with the ability to get from a room (laughs) down into reception? Yeah, that sounds like him. That sounds like him. (laughs) You would have said it more like that <laughs> but, uh, he's, he's lovely by the way you, you know he, he had he suffered some poor health uh, you know a few years back but he's bounced back and he's, he's and we're still the very best of friends which is lovely you know yeah yeah absolutely yeah. well look it's been a pleasure talking to you oh thank you and as we used to say on Whistle Test good luck with the tour <laughs> yes yeah and when you're doing the next one come back and tell us all about it <laughs> <laughs> thank ladies you very and gentlemen much, Mark King thank you Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you, guys. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 